Hello, everybody. Your host here, Mr. Adam X. You're listening to the Pursuit Podcast on the Auto Collective. Got some snow this week. I got like 16 inches. I skied powder. It's the first time I alpined in powder in a really long time. It felt great. It's amazing the effects that powder has on your mental health. So I'm feeling good, feeling great. I got a lot of pow surfing in. My hot take for the week is more of a PSA. Go out and buy a pow surfer. Snowboard with no bindings. It's like all of the great parts of snowboarding and none of the dumb stuff. Sorry, snowboarders, but like two edges are better than one. Snowboards are way better in powder and skiing is better on ice. Just the way it is. It's not up for argument. Don't tell me that you can snowboard on ice. You can, but it's not as cool. So go buy a power serve. End of statement. My sponsor this week, Darn Tough Socks, Darn Tough Vermont. Go to darntough.com. Unconditional, guaranteed for life. I'm telling you guys, I own one pair of these socks and I wear them every day. And when they wear out, I'll send them in and they'll send me a new pair. Lifetime warranty, people. Doesn't get any better than that. DarnTough.com. Check it out. Now to my guest this week, Dan Korn. Uh, We kind of jump right into the episode, so we don't really explain who he is. So I guess I will. Uh, He's a guide, certified guide, has his Abbey Level 3, his Pro Level 2, He's a leave no trace trainer. He's a wilderness first responder, certified rock guide, alpine guide, ski guide, mountain guide. This guy is a, he's a guide. Let's just put it like that. Dan Korn is a guide. Uh, Many of you guys might know him or recognize him or maybe not even know you recognize him from the 50 project. He was in Summit Fever. He is the chill pro skier guide, I think is what they call him in the video. But we talk about Summit Fever and skiing with Cody and Nick and Bjorne. And we just kind of talk about everything and being with those athletes at that level and making the right decisions. And then we go into talking about guiding and working with clients and dealing with clients. And Dan is just a super humble human being. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to speak with him. It was just fun. We just had a great conversation. And, you know, I hope to have that outlook that he has. So listen to the episode. Let me know what you think. It's as simple as that. We're going to get right into this episode. You're solely for the purpose of skiing powder first. And they're sort of hard to get get ahead of. Yeah, it's. Yeah, like I don't have competition. That's always like my big joke, like. Today we went and skied the resort this morning till like noon and then we left the resort and we went pow surfing and like at noon this spot was completely untouched. Like not one track on it. That's pretty awesome. So it's yeah. obviously I'd rather be in the mountains, but like it's always like the big trade off is like there's no competition. There's no one here that I have to battle. And the people that do tour, like they go like they go like backcountry skiing for them is just walking up a groomer before the lift spins and then they just ski down the groomer. It's like the greatest thing on the planet. Yeah, it's pretty nice. <laughs> it, it, when I first, I lived in New Hampshire for a long time. Um, that's where I finished high school and went to college. Um, and backcountry skiing there certainly wasn't very popular outside of Tuckerman Ravine. And so, you know, you'd, it was pretty easy to find your own place and go tour. And then even when I moved to Wyoming, um, you know, there's just not a lot of information and you sort of had to be part of the right piece of the right crew to get glean any information. And then with the advent of, you know, fat map and Instagram and all the social sharing and social media. Now it's like, man, the things that will get tracked, so fast where people just are like whoosh yeah <laughs> and uh go ahead go ahead no i was just gonna say it's totally different in the last 10 years it seems it's been an exponential curve of you know just people getting out and getting after it which is awesome but it also means you just have to walk a bit further to find your own spot 
Yeah, so we're gonna get we're gonna record. We're gonna get right into this. Usually we chat, but we're already into a good convo. So if, I'm just gonna yeah, keep, no, keep I, it rolling. I've never I've never been on a podcast before, so I'll just you know whatever you want to ask or talk about is fine by me. It's great. It's just the goal is to have a conversation, so that's all we're doing. But we've already started a good one, so we're just gonna keep it rolling. How do you think like backcountry has blown up so much in the last ten years? How do you feel about it? Like, where does that, how does it make you feel? <laughs> I guess. You know, I guess in a lot of ways, I think it's kind of cool to see people getting out and enjoying the mountains and their public lands or, you know, just accessing terrain and, and sharing the knowledge is super cool to see that change from when everything was a bit more tight lipped. Um, and so I, I think it's a good thing. I also think that it seems like ski resorts have gotten more and more expensive where um, maybe backcountry skiing is the way for all of us to be able to have good access to the mountains and go skiing because gone are the days of getting a, a season pass to, you know, Loon, Waterville and Cranmore for 240 bucks, um, you know it's not like that anymore. And so, and I can remember, I also feel like the technology and skis have improved and some skis are just so easy to ski on these days that it, it makes challenging conditions, not as difficult as it was when we were skiing on straight skis that were, you know, 210. And you're like, oh, I don't know how to turn these, but I know I should be on the biggest skis possible because that's what everybody cool is doing. So I'll try as well. And, you know, now it's like there's super light bindings and boots have good walk modes and skis do it for you sometimes. <laughs> and so it, it's made the mountains a much easier, more friendly place to go into um, with, with like, obviously there's the initial price tag of getting that gear. But then after you have the gear, it's really just about gaining knowledge. Yeah. And it's what I find a lot of it. And maybe I'm just speaking for the East Coast. But, like, it's just people who have nine to fives who can get a quick lap in before they go to work, which is, like, the coolest thing on the planet for some of these guys. Like, there's people who just strictly tour at ski resorts to get a ski lap in and be at their desk at 9 a.m. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I can remember, I distinctly remember I went to college at Plymouth State college which is now Plymouth State University in New Hampshire and I tele skied for several years because tele bindings were really the only way to you know get out and access the mountains and skin and it was like well this is a cool thing to do like we don't need to walk up the trail to Tuckerman Ravine in our alpine boots anymore we can actually skin up the trail and these boots have flex and a walk mode and I just have to figure out how to drop my knee and, and, you know, do a little bit of parallel marking because I never got that good at tele skiing. But I can remember walking into the Eastern mountain sports in North Conway and seeing a pair of Dina fit bindings for the first time and being like, Oh, wow. And like, unfortunately never looking back, it was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive right into that because they're lighter and they're easier and, and it's easier for me to ski on them as opposed to having to do this more challenging turn. And, you know, it, it's like, oh, wow, that that changed everything right there. It's amazing and, you, you say know, that. Because uh, um, last year I was at Tux. I always try to spend like five days up there in the shelters. And I'm a telemark skier. <clears throat> excuse me. And I'm a telemark skier. And I'm, I'm skinning up and I'm looking at my friend's gear. And I'm looking at my other friend's gear. And I'm like, why now it's changed? Like, as you said, but like, why am I on this heavier, way more breakable gear when I could be on like a lighter weight boot, a pin binding? And so now I've bought, I've like, this is my first year going like back to Alpine. But like, it's funny. Like, I originally did it because I, I wanted to go ski touring and I got Telemark gear because I mean, it was only, seven years ago but still i thought the telemark gear was just easier for the tours i was doing but now backcountry gear is so accessible it's like and it's lighter it's better it's probably not going to fail like a telemark binding could 
Um, but it's funny you said that because like your epiphany was the same as mine, but now I'm like, I went the other way. Yeah, no, it was, you know, and tele skiing is awesome and it's such a beautiful turn. And it's been interesting. Even this year out here, I've seen a few folks tellying again that, you know, are doing some pretty cool stuff on their skis, like skiing switch through the park on tele skis. And I'm like, wow, that's beyond my comprehension as far as ability. But it, it, I feel like it's few and far between to see that tele skier as opposed to see people in Al Alpine touring equipment and, you know, and I also think back to like the original Freechy free rides and Alpine trekkers and all the stuff that was like, all right, how can we have that freedom that tele skiing provides, but be able to lock our heels because it's a little easier, you know? And just lighter. I mean, going weight matters, or at least I think it does. And maybe it's just mental for me, but like, if I have a lighter setup, I feel better. And I just, I feel like I work better and I don't know, it's just part of it, but I don't know. No, for sure. Like every ounce counts. And it's amazing that with boots, skis, and bindings, just how they've changed and how pretty light skis ski really well these days, as opposed to when they were figuring out the process, you know, chattery skis or stuff that was a little unnerving to ski on. And now it's like, wow, these are great. I could ski anything I wanted on these. Yeah. The boom has been wild to watch. And I feel like. You were just on a, I mean, I know you were just on a recent project, but I feel like the, the 50 project has even like blasted that boom even more. Like people are seeing, obviously everyone knows Cody Townsend and he's, he's the Michael Jordan of the backcountry ski world right now. He is, <clears throat> go ahead. Well, I just had to clear my throat. Uh, okay. Um, but he's you know, he's putting it out there and I think there's both sides to it. Like, should you be showing everybody these things? But the access is there, like you said, with the internet and maps and everything else, but you were just in summit fever, correct? Yeah. How, for anyone who hasn't watched summer F summit fever, it's part of the 50 classics series. Um, they do, you do Mount St. Elias, right? Yeah. We made an attempt to ski Mount St. Elias, which the, south side of St. Elias is basically one of the bigger pieces of terrain that you can ski on earth as far as vertical from the summit to where you stop skiing. It's a little bit over 15,000 feet of down with, you know, some lefts and rights, but mainly just skiing the whole way. Um, and so it's a huge piece of terrain. Um, it's also tucked into the Gulf of Alaska in a place that uh, I always jokingly like to say it's where storms go to die. They just sit there until they're gone. And, you know, it, the weather's not great. It can be really cold due to the altitude. Um, and so it, it, it combines to, you know, be a pretty harsh environment at times. Um, and it's one of those things where a lot of the mountains in Alaska are that way. Denali, Foraker, St. Elias, um, Logan, just over the border into Canada, Fairweather Peak, a little bit south of there. It's not as tall, but they all are beautiful, beautiful mountains with amazing ski lines that, you know, when it's nice, it's really nice. And when it's not nice, it's really not nice. So how do you prepare for a trip like this? How do you get involved first off? Do they call you? Are you the guide on this? Are you an actor in this? What is your you know, specific role on the team? So... I, I am a guide. That's what I do for a living, but in no way was I the guide on St. Elias or as part of this. Um, I met Cody on Denali when he was there to ski with a crew that I was actually a climbing ranger for Denali national park for several years. And I gave them their briefing and I sort of met them in the briefing room and talked with them and um, talked about their trip with them and kind of part of the process of going on to Denali is you do a briefing with a ranger that just helps with some of the education relative to going on the mountain, because there's sp some specifics there that if you know some about the route and how to prepare and, you know, talking about altitude and acclimation that it sort of helps people stay out of trouble. And so that's part of the process of getting a permit. And so I met Cody there. That's where I originally met him. 
And I actually originally met Nick on Denali as well with a crew of folks that he was up there splitboarding with. Um, and then Nick and I have spent some time around the Tetons because we have a bunch of mutual friends here before we really became friends. And then I was invited on the trip. Um, I'd never actually met Bjarne before the trip. We met via Zoom and then in the Anchorage airport when I picked him up. Um, but I was invited on the trip just because I guess uh, I am very comfortable in remote, snowy, glaciated wilderness environments. It's kind of my happy place. And I've been lucky to have a lot of experience in those mountains and in that type of terrain. And so um, that's why I was invited along. And originally, actually, I was going to we were going to go a couple years ago. And then due to COVID and a series of changes, it fell through. And then I actually put them in touch with someone else who is another local Teton skier, uh, ski mountaineer extraordinaire, super accomplished guy named Adam Fabricant. And he then couldn't go last spring. And so they came back to me and I was actually able to go. And so it sort of worked out as a fluke that I got to get back on the original team. And so, um, I always joke that I went because I'm good at camping and to help make that side of things easy so that they could focus on their project and, and doing the other stuff um, as far as filming and, you know, making the movie and telling the story. And so sort of just there to help, help out with everything, but not guiding. We we're just there as friends. And it was super cool because it, I've been on a lot of trips with a lot of people, but it's fairly rare to meet, three different people on the computer and then go spend a couple of weeks with them. And, you know, there was never a bad word and everybody got great. And, you know, we really formed a pretty cool friendship through the process of uh, that trip and, and the varying adventures that happened on it. Yeah. I, I wondered, that's why I asked if you were the guide on it. Cause I think like the, the title for your name is like chill skier guide. And I'm like, well, is he guiding this trip? Or is he just joining the trip? So I, I did have that question. That was like my main thought when I watched it. I was like, so did you have a certain guide or was it just you guys? It was just your crew. No, it was just our crew. And I mean, I helped Cody with the, some of the planning and research throughout the process and learning what we needed to learn. Um, and then I have a connection with the Klaus family who Paul Klaus is the pilot who flew us in and out of in, in onto and off of St. Elias. And so I, I knew Paul from previous trips that I'd been a guide on in the Wrangles. And so I got in touch with him and, you know, I just sort of helped with the planning and the process, but um, just more as a team member and a teammate and, having a bit more time to devote to it than they necessarily had as they were busy making other episodes of the 50 project and um, Cody was becoming a dad and all that type of stuff. And so I just sort of helped with legwork. And in some ways it's like hard not to fall into a little bit of a guiding role and that's all you do. But it, it's also just sort of, I'd say everybody, everyone's strengths came forward and, you know, we all, contributed in the ways we could and mine was i'm good at melting water and you know <laughs> digging a kitchen and, and root climbing and i also just happened to really like skiing yeah it seemed like an interesting dynamic and like i felt like there was one point where nick wanted to go and you guys all kind of vetoed him which seemed like the right choice but is it ever intimidating because you're with like these, and I don't want to discredit you by any means, but these guys are like almost movie stars now to be like, Hey, no, <laughs> we got to get out of here. Or like, even when you're guiding in your general, like in your day job, when you're guiding, your job is to get people to the top and get them down safely. Right. But like, is there ever yeah. like a constant, like a pressure to like, push it like how do you manage that i guess i mean there's always a pressure to perform and help people succeed at their goals and and you know help them have the the experience that they would like to have but i also 
I don't know, I through experience and getting older and seeing various things in the mountains, I guess it's easy for me to have the perspective of, you know, the mountain will be there. You know, the only thing about it that could go anywhere is us. And so if we want to get to come home and everybody have a safe trip, you know, we, we need to make thoughtful decisions. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I guess I learned through mentors I had when I was younger that somehow I got really lucky. Like, I don't know how I got so lucky, but the people who are my superheroes in the ski mountaineering world are now my friends. And they're people, you know, that some people may have heard of and other people may never have heard of, but they're the folks that I looked up to and through work and other friends, they became my friends and mentors. And so I learned early on that it was always kind of more important to come back friends and come back alive than to come back successful in whatever summit because what I've seen in the mountains what what you remember in the end of the day is the time that you had with people you don't necessarily remember the top like it's a pretty awesome step along the way but generally you you know you remember a lot more of like eating chocolate chips with Bjarne in the tent as we waited for it to stop raining than any part of the skiing. Like the skiing was awesome. It was super cool. Like great steep skiing, technical exposed, like things I really like and enjoy. But, uh, you know, we, like hanging out in the rain and eating chocolate chips was what I remember as much as I remember any turn for as silly as that sounds. No, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to me. Like I told you always remember like, Again, you don't remember like the 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 destination. You remember the journey, and it's something stupid like that. Or like, I went on a bike trip, and I remember my buddy getting flat tires. It was like the the worst part of the trip is he got like a bunch of flat tires within like a twenty mile section. But that's all we talk about on the trip when we see each other. Is like you freak, like it's the stupid stuff that you remember. It's not where you were going or why you were going there. Yeah. And, and I think I got lucky that I've had a lot of practice at kind of trying to balance various things out on trips I've guided and trips I've done with friends and leading patrols for the park service and all those different experiences make it pretty easy for me to read people. And when I see that, like, something's not right, I'm generally like, okay, well, this is the denominator we need to go with because no matter how stoked one person is to do something, if someone else's heart isn't in it, like there's a good reason that that could be the case. And, you know, listening to that might be the reason that we all come home safe and alive, as opposed to, you know, just to relate it to the avalanche world, you know, you always listen to the person in your group that might have a concern because maybe they've noticed something that no one else has. And, and that is how you avoid that expert halo that people talk about. And so, you know, as we saw poor conditions on the mountain and, you know, not the best weather, it was kind of like, well, you know, there are a lot of things that while it'd be awesome to go up and get it done, there's a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of stuff on the other side of that, that make it where it's like, you know, we can always come back. And we learned a lot by skiing the lower, you know, more than the lower half of the mountain that now we have intimate knowledge with, a bunch of terrain that, you know, before then we'd never even seen before other than flying around on Google earth or, you know, trying to get a picture of it as I was landed on the Hayden shoulder in a super cub. I thought we were doing a flyby so I could see the terrain. And then Paul just sort of stuffed the plane into the side of the mountain is like, get out. And you're like, okay, All right. cool. See ya. And then three, you know, two and a half hours later, you're like, hmm wonder if anyone else is coming because he landed us there one at a time just based on the size of where the landing strip runway is and the type of plane used to do it and you know he's the only maybe one other pilot has ever landed there but i think he's the only person who's ever landed a plane there and put people into that terrain where we landed and so it's like oh okay i thought we were looking at stuff but it's time to go <laughs> so how do you prepare for that like Physically, how do you prepare for that? Mentally, and then how do you know what to bring? Um, you know, like, like through planning and research, you sort of develop a 
an idea of what you're getting into and then knowing what to bring, I'd say is just the culmination of a lot of years of over of like long winter overnight trips and camping and winter camping and winter experience and paring down your kit and learning with time. Like, okay, I, I, I want that, but I don't actually need it. And, you know, kind of just building on past experiences and, talking to people i have some other friends that actually had spent time on saint elias and also had their own epic stories there and so you know just being able to talk to them and glean information as you can and and then also just sort of being confident in your assessment of what you need to bring and what you need to do um while you're there and sort of the conditions you would expect and so i'd say it's so it's uh just gleaning all the information you can from years and years of ski mountaineering and like, okay, this is, you know, if I'm going to go into terrain that I might need to ski down and build an anchor and repel or do any number of shenanigans to get through the terrain, like this is a pretty good kit that I think I can get away with as far as the minimum gear necessary, but everything I need in order to, safely manage the terrain and, and get through it. When you guys, as far as pre- oh, go, oh. Ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, as far as preparing physically, you know, I, I guess for me, it's, I, I'm sort of lucky that, sorry, my dog is playing with this pull toy and That's all right. nailing it on the floor. But, uh, it's, I'm really bad at sitting still. And so, uh, I generally exercise, constantly as i can and so um it's sort of one of those things that i'm always trying like my goal is to always be prepared for whatever might come up so that if a trip does come up it's not like oh no how am i going to train and get in shape for this it's like oh cool so that's what i'm doing and you know and that's where i'll when I can, I try to ride my bike to work in the summer and you're guiding the Grand Teton and then rock climbing in the desert and just trying to maintain a really active lifestyle and eat healthily. Um, you know, I'd say are the biggest things. And, and that way, when you do get to go on an adventure, it's not like a physical question. It's more of like, a okay, what do I need to do to prepare for this? Did you, were you guys, when you skied the lower mountain, were you a completely aware of the situation you were in because like you guys got out of there and that thing let loose like was it did you know is it it was ready to pop you know i i would say we knew that we were later in the day than we wanted to be as far as when we started heading down but it was sort of a fine line because we got up and we decided to start heading towards the ocean um and we delayed to get a cache ready and we sort of had to deal with that cache and get it off the mountain before we could start going. And due to that, that was sort of the timeline that pushed us later in the day as we waited for that to happen. And then once we sent our cash out because, you know, we had some big comfortable tents that we were in and we had extra food and fuel and everything we needed to survive for a long time there. Um, and we didn't, obviously you don't want to leave trash on the mountain, um, or gear on the mountain unnecessarily. And so, you know, we had to deal with that before we could start going, but then once it was gone, we knew there was a storm coming the next day. And it was like, oh, we got to go now. Cause if we don't go now, we're sort of, um, we don't have a boat or a paddle and we're a long way up a Creek, you know? And so it's sort of just the way it worked out that we had to go a little later into the day than we would have liked in the big south facing terrain that had seen a lot of sun. Um, The terrain we were in skiing down, like there was evidence that it already avalanched, which I think made us feel better about it. But anytime you have running water in the snowpack, it's generally a pretty poor recipe for future stability. And so, you know, I'd say we knew we weren't in the best place and then we got cliffed out in that couloir. Um, and then it was kind of like, a, well, do we want to climb up and out of it or do we keep going down and over and do some rock scrambling and get onto this ridge? And 
we chose to go down and over and get onto the ridge, which at least when you're on the ridge, you were in pretty protected terrain with gullies on either side. And so it was a much safer place to be than trying to climb back up and out of it. Um, and so I also knew that that was the original, we weren't too far off the original route that people had climbed on that side of the mountain. And we actually found some old fixed gear that they left in a fixed line um, from an ascent like much earlier. And so we descended that ridge and I guess in my mind, it was like, well, once we get on the ridge, we're good. We're out of these terrain traps. We're out of this gully that if something does come down, it's going to come down the gully. There's a reason the gully forms there. Um, and so it was like, okay, we're on the ridge. Now we just have to deal with loose rock. And then not too long after we got on the ridge, both sides started shedding and it's like, okay, cool. Well, we're in a good place, but you know, we're really glad we're right where we are. Yeah. It almost felt, and clearly it wasn't, but it's like, you couldn't script it any better for storytelling. Like you guys got to the ridge and this thing slid like, oh, I mean, obviously we edit things, but like you guys got to a safe place and then it let loose, which is like talk about like storytelling drama like <laughs> perfect for the film but also terrifying for you guys who are actually there yeah no it was you know it definitely made for a good uh just good added story to everything <laughs> else that was going on we're like okay now we're here and we're in a good place and you know what was really funny and is as we got to the bottom of the ridge and we're kind of like, cool, we're, we're in a safe place. These avalanches are really impressive. Um, and then we got out of that terrain and it's like, all right, sweet. This is great. And then we look down to where we have to go to get to um, these kind of foothills we had to traverse through to get to where we got picked up on the beach. And this huge bear just walks up out of a crevassed area and like into the mist. And it's like, oh, okay. Now we got to deal with that. <laughs> Yeah, we're not done yet. How, and we, this will be my last 50 project question. How much does filming affect what you guys do? Or is it just all on the fly? You know, I would say I haven't spent a lot of time filming or around ski film projects of that type. Like I've definitely helped with professionals you know as far as running safety when they were filming for a movie hitting jumps and that type of thing where it's much more set up um but i really have to put it to bjarne like that guy is an amazing athlete and what he would ski with a camera out in his hands with one bare hand his mitten in his mouth making jump turns you know like his level of skill at what he was doing I think allows for everybody else to sort of do the ski mountaineering stuff and not slow down because he's able to perform at that level and film at the same time. And, you know, and he's super motivated, super talented and, and goes the extra mile to get up in the middle of the storm and get some video footage. And I'm there like, why are you going out there, Bjorn? It's not very nice. And so I I'd really say it was due to his talent that, you don't really notice, you know, we had GoPros, we'd film um, as much as we could and basically all try to contribute. But he he's definitely the man with a the vision there that is able to piece it all together and be thinking both about what you're doing and about getting footage to make a movie or an episode. Yeah, filmers are always like, they always, I'd love to see like his Strava versus someone else's or like his steps, you know, because it's like, he's always got to do like a hundred more feet up or over or left or right, you know, just to get a different shot when you guys just get to go like straight up the shoot or what, you know, but he's, I mean, phenomenal. And you can always tell that like, he's on it. He's always ahead of the curve. He's always just, he never seems tired, which is always unbelievable to me. Like that guy's gas tank must just be like endless. Well, you know, when he runs out of food, he gets a little tired. I can tell you that. I've experienced it. But other than that, you know. This guy keeps he's, him fed. He's barely tireless. It was, it's amazing. The project was amazing. I'm glad you were part of it. It was a nice little element to it. 
um, just new faces. And I think they've done such a great job with bringing different people into all the projects just to like, you know, it's not just the Cody show. He brings in friends. He brings in, you know, it's great to see. And it was, I mean, the project was amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think I was going to say this earlier, but I think what's really cool about what Cody's done is how he's sort of made this type of thing a little more attainable and, and normal and shown not just the cool skiing, but everything involved and the people he's with and the process. And, it, it, you know, it, it makes it where it's not, you know, people on a pedestal are able to do this, but it's like, oh, yeah, well, this is four people going on an adventure and having that adventure together and everybody contributes in their own way yeah he's definitely norm normalized it might be the wrong word because he he shows it's hard but he shows like you know these pros are suffering too or like you know i filmed for two hours with my lens cap on like we're human we're all you know it's not all just like oh yeah we had a perfect window and we got up there like Three years ago, he was sleeping in his truck and it was negative four degrees. And now he's upgraded to a van with heat. But like he's he's making it obtainable is the, the best word for it is like this is hard. It's a suffer fest for everybody. But the joy that it brings and how accessible it is, if you do your research and get there, it's it's been phenomenal to watch. Yeah, it's more about wanting to go than having some secret ingredient that allows you to you know it's like oh yeah we we want to go ski this go ski this mountain because it's really cool and it's an amazing place and it's a beautiful wilderness and that's all it takes you know it's kind of one of those you you need to have the desire before you can do anything and and that's the key ingredient it's not some you know special thing where you know you have all of the best of this or all of the best of that, but it's more just how you approach it and being willing to step into the unknown and have that adventure and then learn from it and then continue to learn from it. Yeah. It's, it's been a fun series to watch. That's for sure. I want to talk about guiding cause that's your day job, right? That's what we do every day. Uh, yeah. Every day all evening into the night <laughs> and sometimes I'm far better at uh being a guide and communicating with people than I am at being a, a boyfriend or a significant other or taking care of stuff at home if, uh, if only it was you sort of get tunnel vision just tell your significant other she's got to pay you and then you you'd communicate better <laughs> and she would reply and say yeah but I take care of you so that you can go do what you like to do and therefore you need to be present and helpful for me and i'm like yes you're right she's right we know we all know she's right so, but yes we all know she's right where are you guiding now i know you've guided all over the world but where are you guiding now so in the winter i work for a couple different guide services in the teton area um i work at jackson hole mountain resort as one of the alpine guides there and that is basically using the tram and then going out of bounds, out the gates into the backcountry, and doing a lot of gravity fed skiing or, you know, short boot packs to access terrain further to the south. Um, and then skiing and then traversing back into the ski area and riding the tram again. So very similar to what some of the guiding or mountain access is like in Europe, where you can kind of cheat the up a little bit by having the magic red box. Um, and so I do that. I also work for Exa mountain guides, which is in Grand Teton national park. And there it's more, it's all ski touring based where it's human powered, you're skinning and climbing and then descending whatever, um, objective that you've really picked out for the day. And, and that'll vary from, folks who are brand new to ski touring and want to learn how to skin and, you know, make kick turns and the, and, and go through the hard process of figuring out how to travel with Alpine touring setups um, on one end. And on the other end, it's guiding things like ski descents of the Grand Teton or the Apocalypse Coulard or Mount Moran and some of the other 50 classics, you know, of 
that are in this area. Um, and then in February, I head to Alaska and I've worked for a variety of heli operations there. Um, but this spring, I'll be working for Valdez Heli Ski Guides, where I worked a while back before I got a job for Denali National Park. I worked for Valdez Heli Ski Guides for a couple of years. And so I've sort of looped my way back there. And I'll be spending the spring in Valdez working with folks heli skiing. Um, and so that'll be mid-February through the end of April, early May. And then after that, it's more into the big mountain, ski mountaineering season and guiding trips on Denali or personal trips like the trip with Cody um, when we went to St. Elias. Because that May, June is sort of the window for those big mountains and that terrain when it's snowy, it's warm, so it's not super cold. And you kind of have the right conditions to travel on the glaciers where the crevasses are fairly well filled in. You're still seeing freezes at night, but you're seeing warm enough temps that you're not just literally freezing and surviving. And so that'll be May and June. And then in June, I usually cycle back down through to the lower 48. And I guide for Exum guiding trips on the Grand Teton. I guide for Alpine Ascents in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'll also do trips to Europe or um, that are more alpine climbing or rock climbing based in Switzerland or France. And then sometimes in South America to Chile um, to do more heli ski guiding uh, for a company called Powder South down there. And then in the autumn, I cycle back through and it's more like rock climbing season and in the Western U.S., um, I'm also a member of the American Mountain Guide Association instructor team. So I help with courses for guides in training. And so that's sort of throughout the year. Well, there's the ski discipline, the alpine discipline, and the rock discipline. And so I work in all three. And we do training courses that are about 10 days long on average. And folks who are either active guides or aspire to be guides take those courses as professional development. Um, and then it cycles back through into winter and teaching avalanche courses and getting back into the ski guiding world. And so that's sort of the loop. Um, and, and then I usually will try and do some sort of cool trip for myself somewhere in there, in addition to cutting firewood and, and actively trying to do some helpful stuff at home where Ellie keeps everything running and takes care of everything while I'm gallivanting around having fun. I mean, the heli guiding has to be like the mecca right that's got to be like a mini vacation you know the heli guiding is pretty amazing it's certainly stressful you know because you throw you take something dangerous and you throw a helicopter into the mix which is equally you know they're an amazing tool but you have to respect them and they certainly have their own hazards like a couple good friends died last spring in a helicopter crash in alaska and they were guides and so you know, there's certainly risks there, um, but it, it it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's kind of like you get to go ski in super cool mountains and you get to fly in a helicopter, which is cool in itself. You know, like there's nothing quite as unique as being the passenger in the helicopter as the pilot flies around and you're like, oh, so this is what it would be like to be in a hummingbird. You know, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, just very worth respecting. Yeah, and no lift lines. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> Absolutely zero lift lines. If you could tell ever like any of your clients one thing, what would you tell them? Like one piece of advice for anyone who's taking who's like hiring a guide. Ah, that's a hard one. I'd say listen to your guide. Um, ask questions to make sure you understand what they're trying to communicate. And remember that no matter how bad the conditions you're experiencing are, it's still better than most of anything else the world's doing. So we're pretty lucky to be doing it. Even if we're like side slipping down breakable crust, um, we're lucky to be there. But yeah, I think just work on communicating and making sure that you understand what people are trying to uh, relay to you. And, and there's no such thing as a dumb question 
because it, you know, we all have our experience in trying to explain that and communicate with people is often the challenge. And so I'd say just ask all the questions because then you learn more. Yeah. I think that's great. But I think people are intimidated to hire guides and I'm not sure why, if that makes well, sense. I think it's a lot of, it, I think it's often based on ego where people in the States especially are like, well, if I hire a guide, it means I don't know what I'm doing as opposed to being like, well, there's a reason I don't try to doctor myself. I go and ask a professional that's been to medical school to see what's wrong with me. It's like, you know, if you, if you have a job that doesn't allow you to be intimately familiar with the mountains and mountain travel, and you can afford to hire a guide, why wouldn't you shortcut all of the experience that they had to gain and allow yourself to just enjoy the experience rather than stressing out about, am I in the right place? Am I going the right way? You know, all of this unknown, but I really feel like it's, it's related to people's egos and, and this concept that if you have to hire a guide, it means you don't know what you're doing as opposed to meaning that you're just open and willing to learn and you want to have the best experience possible. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, honestly, because it's, it's skiing's a weird sport when it comes to that. There's a lot of people who just buy skis and they go skiing. They don't take a lesson. They just figure it out, which is great. But then when you get into like big mountains, backcountry, like it's life and death sometimes. So like, I like that you said, yeah. if you don't have a job that allows you to be intimate with it, this is what you are there for. Yeah. And I mean, to quote Alex Lowe, um, you know, he, he was famous for saying the the greatest climber in the world is the one having the most fun. And I think that's relative to all mountain endeavors. It's like, you know, if you're having a good time, it doesn't really matter what you're doing because you're enjoying what you're doing and you're there living in the moment. And, you know, not everybody gets to do that. And like relative to going out with a guide, it's like it gives you a, a whole new ability to have a good time and enjoy what you're doing because it takes the stress off the table, you know, let me stress out about where we're going to stay, what we're going to eat, what we're going to do so that you can enjoy your vacation as opposed to, you know, feeling like you have to plan it all yourself and figure out how to speak whatever language of whatever country you're in, in order to like try and navigate, you know, it's like, let someone else worry about that. And often I think the people that some of my best clients that I've been really fortunate to travel with, you know, it's more about having an experience with someone, you know, and, and like the fun that you have together than necessarily where you are, because, you know, like I, I've been really lucky to go on some cool trips with people and like sleep in the dirt in Bolivia. And we, we just have a good time because we're there together, even though, you know, it might be you know, any kind of epic adventure that you're like, oh, okay, now we are out of gas in uni and there's no diesel for a few days. And now we're here in this giant salt flat and we got to hang out. Well, at least we're with people we like since everything else we thought we were doing is not in our control. And so it's that's where I always like to tell people like, you know, not every guide is meant for every person. Like, because personalities, personalities don't always mix, you know, but there's the right guide for everybody and you just have to find it. And then when you find someone that you get along with and you jive with how they do things and how they communicate and, you know, you like how they manage safety margins, you know, that's a person to go and do trips with because then you're going to have a really good time and enjoy that trip, no matter where you are, or what you're doing, you know, I, I went on a trip this past fall with someone that is a great friend. I originally met him. Um, I was a ski coach at Loon Mountain, and that's where I met him. And then we didn't see each other for years, and we reconnected because I was hired as a guide for a big trip in the Alaska Range that he was on. And then we've made, maintained our friendship since then, and I don't even really guide him anymore. We just go on adventures together. And like this past fall, we dirt bike from the Amazon rainforest over the Andes to La Paz. And, you know, 
it was a grand time, even though I didn't know anything about dirt biking. And, you know, to quote Carl, he's like, well, if you're going to learn to swim, you might as well jump in the deep end. And he's a really good motorcyclist. And so, you know, like here I am trying to figure out that, no, you can't actually throttle and handbrake with the same hand. That's how you do a wheelie and crash. And he's just behind me, like laughing. And it's kind of funny to be like, yeah, and I'm supposedly the one that works as a guide in this situation, you know, even though it's not the case, you know, and it's, it's sort of like, it makes it all entertaining because you're like, well, here we are. At least we're having a good time together, even though everything else you're doing is, you know, maybe not as planned. But it's a testament to who you are and why you do what you do, because it's your willingness to learn. And I think that's like one of the greatest assets of a guide or like a human who is a guide, they're willing to learn all the time. And that's hard, especially when you're like, you're a top tier athlete, you're a professional in your profession, yet that's changing every day. That mountain is different every day. Whatever you're doing, it's it's forever changing. And I think from what I've learned every time I interview a guy, a guide is their willingness to learn. Well, I mean, learning is like a, it's a pretty cool lifelong process, as you know, you know, and, and it's one of those things where I think if you get caught up thinking you're at the top of your game, it's just further to fall because, you know, the next generation is always going to surpass us because they got to build off of what we figured out. Just like we got to build off of, you know, what my mentors figured out ahead of me. And, you know, not that I'm saying I surpassed them in any way, shape or form, but like you get these stepping stools that the people before you didn't have that, you know, makes things a little more reasonable. And if you're not willing to admit that or see that, it's kind of like you're tricking yourself into a corner. Whereas if you're open to learning and willing to admit like, yeah, I don't know, I'm sorry. You know, it's just more honest and better. And then everybody gets to learn and have a good time instead of trying to figure out how to fake your way through something because you feel like that's what you need to do. Yeah, but that takes a lot. Like you say it and it's easy, but guides, like you have to live that. Like I can say that in a situation that how I will react. I can say that here while I'm sitting in my van comfortably. But like when shit is hitting the fan and I'm my ego comes into play. Like I hope that it doesn't come into play. And then I have this willingness to like evolve, adapt, listen and learn. And guides are like these, like, I don't know, little like ego fairies that are like, could just have it under control. And it's, it's crazy. It's like a, I mean, I've only done a couple guided trips, but every time I'm like, this person is like rock solid, like mentally. And it's, 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 uh, it's a, you know, it's a tip of the hat to your profession and just like, it's wild to, when you witness it, when you get to go with a guide and see it and experience it as a consumer and being like, like that was, you know, I had a guide on tux the first time I went up and, we had a riot and to this day we keep in touch. We're not like super close friends, but like if I'm heading out there, I shoot him a text and like, I'll never forget that day. But like we, we ended up going on tux and it was horrible conditions, super high heavy conditions, but we just went to the floor and like did some snow studying and dug a pit and like, just so we could still learn. But like stubborn me who was younger was like, let's get up there. And he's like, you, we're not, we're not going anywhere near that thing, dude, you know, like, but it was cool. And what I also learned is it was a backcountry fest and excuse my ramble here, but the people in the intermediate group, they all went and, and they weren't allowed on tux cause they were intermediates. So they went and like ripped low angle and had like the best powder day of their lives. Meanwhile, all the hardos who were in the expert group went to tux and didn't get any fun skiing because it was too dang. We skied the Sherb, but you know, who wants to ski the Sherb when you can actually ski? But it was like one of those things that you learn like sometimes lower angle, less riskier stuff is a better 
choice and better turns for the day, even though that maybe wasn't your mission or assignment for the day. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, I think a couple things, but it's like, you sort of just have to make the most of the opportune moment when you get it. And that's part of it is just being in the right place at the right time. And sometimes you get that your first trip and sometimes it takes a lifetime to get it. And then the, the guiding stuff, I feel like it's like, well, basically you, if you're going to get humble pie for dinner, you can either eat it or you're going to get hungry after a while. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Um, and so, you know, and it's just trying to be honest with yourself and, and also just being honest as you grow and change as you get older too, because some of the things, you know, I used to ice climb a ton and work for IMCS in north conway and that's what i did and now it's like well i'm much more of a ski guide than i'm an ice climbing guide because there's not much ice climbing where i live um and there's a lot more skiing and you know there's better guides to go ice climbing with because they're tuned up and doing it and, but if you want to go skiing that's sort of what i'm better for these days but it always changes and i think a lot of it, it it's like just continuing to be honest with yourself as you cycle through life and learn and grow and change. And, you know, when there's nothing wrong with Sherby laps, I mean, <laughs> I know, I, but you know what I, I mean? I was super fortunate to spend some time working for the Mount Washington avalanche center. And I got to live in the ranger cabin there for six weeks on a detail. And there was nothing better than the nighttime Sherby laps. You know, we also got to ski, a lot of really cool things in Huntington and in Tux, but you know, I probably remember Andrew Drummond showing up with headlamps and going skiing at night as well as anything I skied in like Dodge's drop or that kind of stuff. Cause it was just fun. And I think that's what it all boils down to is like having fun, being real and having fun goes a long way. Yeah. That's been my motto this year. It's like, I'm the worst skier here. I have no ego in that. I'm the worst one here. But no one is going to have more fun than me today. And I promise you that. And it's been good. I've been holding uh, it up. I think it's like, you got to stay true to it. You yeah. can't beat that. You can't. And it's, a, it's you know, the only thing you can control is your attitude. That was like, I think Shane McFall said it, uh, the filmer for Traveling Circus. But it's like, man, that stuck with me so hard. He, he was on a podcast earlier and it was like, the only thing you control is your attitude. And I was like, there's some truth to that. So I think we forget that skiing is fun and that we do this for fun. And like you said, you're like, you know, shuffling down some breakable crust. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that would much rather be doing this right here, right now. So enjoy it, even though it sucks, maybe enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that couldn't even comprehend getting to be there doing that, you know, yeah. As far as compared to what a lot of the world is dealing with and going through, like we, we lead a pretty privileged life to get to spend all that time in the mountains. It's a pretty magic place. It, it really is. So real quick, I've had you for about an hour here. Advice to anyone who wants to get into guiding. Like what is like, I know it's a multi-step process, but like any advice for someone who's listening, who is like, this is what I think I want to do. I would say if you want to get into guiding, really try to get as much experience as possible and get comfortable in the environment that you want to guide in, whether it's kayaking or climbing or skiing or whatever it is, but, you know, develop a comfort there that allows you to have the bandwidth to pay attention to what other people around you are doing, as opposed to worrying at all about what you're doing and, you know, seek out and find good mentors and there's that whole mentorship concept that people struggle with these days. And I think part of it is because a lot of people don't think or don't remember necessarily that like mentorship goes two ways. Like the, you know, like you have to like, just because someone's mentoring you about something that they know a lot about doesn't mean that you're not going to mentor them about something that you know a lot about. And when you can find that relationship, that's that's really the mentors you want to have because then it it it's more of a friendship than like a, oh this person's my mentor 
they're going to teach me. It's more like, oh, I really like hanging out with this guy. And for whatever reason, he likes hanging out with me. And we can we can both learn from each other and really seek out those friendships. And, and like, you know, good mentors are hard to come by and hard to find. But that's kind of why it takes work, just like anything else good. Like, the more you put into it, the more you try to learn and glean knowledge from anyone you can you know, the more well-rounded you'll make yourself and the more you'll be able to put into becoming a guide and focusing on the guiding rather than the, you know, oh, cool, I'm getting paid to go climb or getting paid to go ski. It's more like, check this out. I'm going to get to help this person have the experience of a lifetime that it might be a day of work for me, but they're going to remember it forever. And it it's really cool. And so I guess that would be my long-winded long-winded answer of uh what i would suggest and you know get professional training but balance it with experience because the more you know the more you know and you don't know what you don't know until you learn it and i had a really good mentor tell me that once and i was sort of like ah i was a young punk and you know now i look back at it and i'm like oh man he's so right that was the smartest thing anyone said to me ever was like you're never going to know what you don't know until you go learn it. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, okay. So there's a whole world of things I don't know that I need to learn about. Yeah. It really starts to make sense when you start looking around and start learning. You, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And it's, it's, you know, and I said it before, but it's a testament to guides from you to everyone around the world, just your capacity to like be a sponge, admit mistakes and evolve and just continue to learn and continue to like push our sport and the boundaries of our sport and the safety of our sport. Like we're doing more dangerous things, arguably safer, which is neat. Like it's scary, but like the amount of people accessing the backcountry now, yeah, the numbers are high of people accessing them. So of course injuries are going to be up, but like there's a lot of successful missions out there from just, average joes which is a beautiful thing which 20 years ago they would it would have not have been obtainable missions yeah i mean it's a wicked learning environment you know and and in some ways that's what makes it so cool is the margins are there and you do need to learn and you do need to be open because it only takes one mistake or one inopportune moment to get into a bit of trouble. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that's what people dwell on is they talk about, oh, well, did you hear about this incident or did you hear about that accident? And it's important to learn from those things, but it's also important to remember, like, you only heard about the accident. You didn't hear about the thousand amazing trips that people had that they made memories to last a life a lifetime that you know because everything went well you didn't necessarily hear about it right it'd be like if we reported every car accident like every fender bender made the new york times front page like people drive cars every day people die in cars every day we need to celebrate more victories and not just put the bad things in the limelight which which that sells their media that's their job, but it feels with the ski industry, it's the only time we make headlines is when something bad happens or Cody Townsend yeah. skis the crack. <laughs> That's like the last. I mean, that was, rightfully so. Yeah, that was one turn away from being really bad, though. But, yeah, no, and I think it's just, yeah, just try to keep learning, and that's all we can do and be open to it because – we're all going to be wrong sooner or later. Like no one's infallible and remembering that too. And it's all the more reason to keep learning and, and drive carefully because who knows? Yeah. That's you can it. only do, you can only do the best you can. Yeah. I like that. That's just, we'll leave it at that. It's as simple as that. You can only do the best you can. <laughs> uh, cool. Dan, where can people follow you? I think you have a pretty good Instagram following. If you have a blog, where can they hire you? It's kind of your outro here. Um, I would say if anybody wants to get in touch, I 
I really enjoy taking pictures. And so my Instagram is mountain corn, M T N C O R N. Um, and feel free to email me or reach out to mountaincorn at gmail.com is probably the best way to get in touch with me. Um, and if you don't hear back from me for a little while, it's just cause I'm in the mountains and doing something cool and there's no internet there, which is just the way it should be, but I will get back to you. <laughs> Perfect. Dan, thank you so much. This was great. Oh, well, well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor to get to talk to you. And so greatly appreciate it. Awesome, man. Episode 43 of The Pursuit on the Auto Collective. That was Dan Korn. Follow him at Mountain Corn, MTN Corn. Follow me, Mr. Adam X. Follow at Auto Podcast. Come see us this week. We'll be at OR. Uh, I think it's going to be awesome. I'm excited to see everyone's faces, some old friends, some new friends. Uh, We're going to mask up. We're going to keep it safe. We're going to have a good time. So come see us at OR this week. If you're in Denver, if you're skiing, let me know. Uh, I'm going to try to ski on Saturday. I think that's the 29th. I'm an icon skier, so I will be on an icon at an icon resort. Yeah, like, share, review, subscribe, do the whole thing. I'm Mr. Adam X. As always, I'll see you tomorrow.